The reading this morning can be found on page 1221 on the Bibles in front of you. And we're reading from 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back again. I'm still pleased to be back, don't worry. And for those who have been away, I know we've still got people away on school holidays and I haven't seen you. It's great to have you back at St Matthew's and uh, it's good to be here. Let me pray as we begin a second message reflecting. Father, we do thank you for all your blessings. And Lord, we do thank you for your church and your people who have held fast over the years. But Lord, as we look to the future... Father, instruct us, guide us, strengthen us so that we will be living witnesses in this place we call Manly and Sydney. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you weren't here last week, uh, I'm trying to get out of my system long service leave and kind of the indulgent nature of a senior minister and show you some of my holiday pics under the guise of a sermon. Uh, And I got most of them out last week, okay, but I've got a few left. Um, And we looked last week at the church through history, particularly some reflections I had in terms of over in England and Europe. And in particular, we looked at the 16th century Reformation, which was such an important event. But today, as I reflect, I want us to look forward, not back. Last week, we saw some very significant things that men and women struggled for, even died for, 
that the Christian faith is based on the Bible alone, which is by grace alone through faith alone, and we take hold of it in Christ alone. This week, we're going to cast our eyes forward. And I think the second thing that struck me as I went away and I've been thinking upon is this, just how different Sydney and our world has become in my time here at Manly. And there's no doubt when I went away from Sydney and I went down to Wollongong, uh, it was a great time. We were down there 15 years and uh, my Wollongong friends don't like me saying this, but it's like a big country town. Now, I wouldn't normally say that to them, though I've got actually a few of them, John and Linda here from my old church, Um, but it is like a big country town. You come back to Sydney and you realise this place is different and over the last seven years, um, it struck me how different this city is to when I left back in the 90s. And it's interesting, I was talking to Simon Smart from the Centre for Public Christianity and they started their ministry about a year before I started here at St Matthew's and he said as they began, it's almost like culture had changed a significant gear. And you think about just a couple of issues, debates on gay marriage have taken place, we've got a plebiscite most likely by the end of the year on that issue. Uh, Gender is being increasingly redefined, the letters LGBTI meant nothing to me three years ago, Uh, they're front and centre for all of us. And people are wanting to actively remove scripture from the state schools. It's interesting times, challenging times. And I want to think about what it means for us to be a Christian in this changing world. And I want to do it through the metaphor of cities. And I've been travelling, as you know, and we saw four great cities, London, Edinburgh, Paris and Prague. And there's no doubt cities are great places to live. Now, We talk about getting away, in a sense, to the bush. Uh, I personally want to get up the coast or down the coast because I have a great affinity, as I know many of you know, with salt water, and there ain't much of that out in Dubbo. Um, But we get away to kind of get away from the rush and the hustle and the bustle. But yet, as people who live in cities, we love it, don't we? Um, Cities are great. And here's just one thing um, that you see in cities, is you get a great sense of the history of the world in cities, particularly in Europe. Now, one of the things that struck me was uh, one of the great places to go to in England and London is the British Museum, and you get a feel for kind of the weight and the power of the British Empire when you go to the British Museum, because as you go in, you go, gee, they took a lot of stuff home. (laughs) They've been all over the world, haven't they? And they just took it all home with them. Now... As someone whose English said to me, well, it probably would have got destroyed if we didn't take it. History is written by the strong. Um, you see some incredible things there. Now, here's one little thing. And you often walk past displays and you just kind of see the big things that are highlighted, like the Rosetta Stone and the mummies, etc., etc. But these are amulets from Ephesus. It's in the Greco-Roman collection. And they mightn't mean a lot to you, but if you go to Acts 19, and in particular... Uh, to verses 23 to 31, you'll know the story that there was a revival when the gospel came to Ephesus and such was the turning of people from pagan worship to the Lord Jesus Christ that it put the silversmiths out of business. Now, this display, which you can see here, are the actual pieces that the silversmiths made and were being put out of business in terms of selling and they're there in the uh, British Museum, gold, silver, terracotta ornaments, figurines dedicated to the goddess Artemis, which was the one they worshipped there but then stopped worshipping uh, in the sanctuary at Ephesus, dating back to 600, uh, 600 years before BC. And you see the wonder of cities in terms of the way history is collected. Um, 
Paris is the great city of love, but it's also the great city of art. And here's my favourite picture in terms of being in Paris. Uh, it's from the Musée de la Orgerie, forgive my French. Um, it's Monet, if you're not familiar. It's probably one of the great exhibitions of his uh, water lilies. And this uh, museum has three rooms, four paintings only in each. They're all water lilies, all Monet. They're about six metres long. And you sit there in silence. And you just take it in. And you see, cities produce this. There's a sense of which um, there's a culture that is developed in cities. But then there's also another side to cities, which is a darker side. And one of the places we went to also was Prague. And Prague is the capital of the Czech Republic, former Czechoslovakia. And it's a city which lived under communist regime for many years. In fact, uh, one of our staff, William Mako, was there part of that communist regime uh, in their sports program. He defected. It's why he ended up here in Australia. And you see the darker side, and here's an interesting place. Um, it's a tower called the Zizkov Television Tower. It was built and designed by the communists, and it was made to try and block out radio and TV transmissions from the West during the communist era. It's now ranked number four in the most ugly buildings in the world. And I went on a couple of sites, and uh, on most of them was number four. And these are the architectural flourishes that they put on the building, they're little babies. They are the weirdest thing I have ever seen. Now, I show that because you just see there's a great diversity about cities. There's no doubt about that. And you think with me about cities. Uh, the strong and the weak are attracted. Uh, the rich and the poor gather together. Cities are places that attract minorities because they can find fellow kindred spirits together. It's one of the things that defines cities. You'll see little pocket groups of splinter interests where they define themselves according to that special need or like or ethnic grouping. But it's also a place where sin flourishes. And there's no doubt about that. The sins of a country typically begin in a city and emanate out to the country. It's not the reverse movement. And when you mix a diversity of people who are driven by self-interest and self-indulgence, which is, if I can say, what we typically are, it's the reality of what the Bible calls sin, sin flourishes, evil takes hold. And so cities typically can breed racism, classism, violence, godlessness, homelessness. You don't see a lot of homelessness in country towns. You do in the city, you do here in Manly. And so cities can become places of wilderness and persecution. And people will go to cities because in cities you can kind of create your own morality. There'll be enough people who'll share your aberrant view, if you've got one, for it to take root. And so they can be places of pride, arrogance, but also overwork. That's an issue we're going to be dealing with next term, or this term coming, as we think about the Christian and work. I mean, it's interesting, people don't go to cities to rest, do they? Where do you go to rest? <laughs> You go away from the city because it's quiet. But cities are fascinating. It's the centre of business. It's the centre of culture. It's the centre of education. It's the centre of finance. It's the centre of media. It's the centre of thought. Now, why I mention all this? I've got a very important question for us. Um, I want to ask this question. What city do we live in? Now, I know the obvious answer is we live in Sydney. But I want to ask it metaphorically. And I want to use three of the great cities from the Bible to get us to think about what city do we live in and what does that mean for us. 
Think with me about this first city, it's Jerusalem. Uh, it's the city that was established under King David. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's where he captures the city that was once impregnable. It becomes in Old Testament and Israelite thought the city of God. And you might say it's a metaphor, this city, for the Judeo-Christian worldview where it prevails. Where people look to the church as the keeper of values and morality that protect life and people. Jerusalem stands for that kind of city. But there's another city which was made famous by the Apostle Paul when he visited the Areopagus, it's Athens. And Athens was the city in the New Testament that was very religious, so religious they had a statue to the unknown God. It's a city where worldviews were debated and fought for, yet there was an acceptance of diversity in the city of Athens and a recognition that every view had a right to be heard and debated. Is that the city we live in? And then there's one even more famous. You first encounter it at chapter 11 of Genesis and it's not done with until about chapter 18, 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation and it's Babylon. And it's a city that speaks of and is symbolic of godless culture that has jettisoned a Judeo-Christian worldview for pagan religion. And it celebrated its religion and strictly opposed all those who stood against it. And you think with me of the Babylon that you meet in the middle of the Old Testament with Daniel and the exiles from Israel who've been sent there. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace for what reason? It's because they would not bow down to the gods of the day. Daniel himself was thrown into the lion's den for what reason? Because he refused to stop praying to our God. He didn't hide it and they threw him in the lion's den. And you think of the Babylon of the book of Revelation that's filled with immorality and religion opposed to God and is that us? That's the question, what city are we living in now and how are we to live in this place that we call Sydney? It's one of the questions I've been thinking about. Because there's no doubt Australia has changed, Sydney has changed. We were once Jerusalem. The church was once at the centre of the marketplace. And you still hear echoes of that. What kind of put a smile on my face was Pauline Hanson saying, we're a Christian country. She wasn't the advocate I was thinking of. And then spoke about the secular values of Australia. Slight bit of confusion there with Pauline. Anyway, we'll leave that. We once were Jerusalem. John Jones, who comes at 8 o'clock, once had his sermons published in the Sydney Morning Herald on a Monday when he was the rector of St Philip's, the church in the city. That ain't the way it is today. Simon Smart will publish articles for the Centre of Public, uh, Public Christianity about quarterly. The response to them online is strident and opposed for most of those comments. We are not in Jerusalem. We were in Athens, where different worldviews could be debated. But I do wonder, are we now living in Babylon? It's a question mark. Let me give you two examples that are illustrative. 
sexuality. Forty years ago, there was a common belief that the place for sex was within marriage. Now, 40 years ago, I was 12. These are my teenage years. I knew what was right and wrong and when I was doing the wrong thing. And marriage was definitely between a man and a woman. The family unit was seen as a basic building block for society where a mum and a dad raised kids for the betterment of society. And with gender, it was obvious you were male or female. Now, yes, there, were, there was a recognition that there's a very, very small minority who have indeterminate sex in terms of biology and gender orientation, but you're men and, boy, men and women, boys and girls. We're made male and female, but today, today sexuality has been completely redefined. And it's been defined now as a social construct that you can choose. And anything goes. Hence the letters LGBTI. There is no common definition for a family. There are so many types of what we call modern families. And you think of TV shows the way it's changed. When I grew up, what was the stereotypical sitcom for a family? It was the Brady Bunch. And that was kind of slightly risque because it was a blended family. But you had mum and dad and six kids. Now you look at modern family, the program today, it's very different. The next five months of plebiscite on gay marriage. How do we live in this city going forward? School scripture. Not everyone liked it 40 years ago, but it was recognised as being a good thing for our country. Um, it was seen as providing, kind of, at a bare minimum, an ethical framework to live from. The Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, here's, from the Greens website, a current view. In addition, the Greens would like to eliminate scripture classes and special religious education from public schools. Religion is a private matter and that children should never be subjected to any form of pressure or indoctrination while they're in a government school. Now, let me just say uh, an aside, uh, I have problems with all the political parties and I could tell you my issues with the Liberals, I could tell you my issues with the Labor Party. With one, uh, I'm not here to support, if I could say, every other party than the Greens. Uh, but this is one particular issue that does worry me greatly. Because it's not just the Greens who say this. Religion is a private matter. We don't want people indoctrinated. How do we live in this city going forward? If you've got your Bibles there, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. And for the second half of this message, I want us to think about what 1 Peter has to say to us. 1 Peter is a great letter to reflect on this question with. And it's a great letter because... They were living in Babylon, definitely. The culture that the Apostle Peter is engaging with and helping the Christians think about how they live within was very much Babylon. It was one very much opposed to the Christian faith. There was great suffering and great persecution. And he addresses scattered Christians to help them think through how they live in this secular, if I can say, godless society. And there's four things I want to say that he gives us from this chapter, chapter 2, verse 11 through to 25. Firstly, identity. If we are to live in a secular city, which is what we've become, and I think it's somewhere between Athens and Babylon, friends, we must know who we are. Our identity is absolutely crucial. And I want you to note the way Peter addresses the Christians there. He does it at the very beginning of chapter 1 and he repeats it here in chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Chapter 1, verse 1, he talks to God's elect 
exiles scattered. And those two words, they're very helpful for us. Um, the word foreigner we're very familiar with, um, and we have, if I can say, foreigners who come here. It's slightly pejorative these days. Uh, we tend to talk more of multiculturalism and international people coming amongst us. It is a much more friendly way than kind of saying you're a foreigner. Um, but the word in the original language meant a temporary resident. And we've got lots of those who come here to Manly, haven't we? Uh, I've just been a temporary resident over in London. And when you're a temporary resident, you understand who you are. You see, your identity is that I'm here visiting. It might be for work, it might be for leisure. I was in London for family reasons, to see my daughter, but also to enjoy and learn. But I know I'm coming home. And so I partake of the city, I obey the laws, I get on with life. But I don't hold too closely to it because I know I'm going to be on a plane in a few weeks' time coming home. We are foreigners, friends, is what Peter says in terms of our life here in Australia and in Sydney. And then the second word is exile, and it comes from the Old Testament because Israel were exiled. They went into the land of Jerusalem, they lived in the city of God, but they were thrown out of that city. And they went to Babylon. And he says, friends, uh, actually, we're exiles too. We're foreigners and we're exiles. And the word exile meant that you were a stranger passing through, residing in a country that was not your own. And so what he's saying is, with two words, it's the same concept. Actually, this is not your home. You need to understand that if you are to be faithful to Christ here. And in verse 9, just preceding what we had read of chapter 2, he says something also very important. He says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special people. In other words, you are dearly loved. We've just sung that song, Good, Good Father, and that's who we belong to, our Heavenly Father. We've come into his family through the Lord Jesus Christ when we repented and believed the gospel and accepted Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And this world is not our own. We're like foreigners passing through. Understand your identity. Secondly, understand the context. And he says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. Now, let me just say, uh, reflect on the word pagan. Um, if foreigner is a slightly pejorative word, pagan is definitely far more pejorative. It's not the kind of word you drop into conversation with your neighbour. Oh, good to see you, pagan. <laughs> Want to catch up for a beer? It's interesting what the word means when you translate it. It simply means this. Um, it refers to people who don't believe in God, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the non-believers, it's those who've got a different belief to us. That's who they are. But what he says is, live such good lives among them, those who are not Christians, if I can put it that way. Now, it's worth noting one thing about Australia, when you ask the question, what city do we live in? Jerusalem, Athens, Babylon. This is from the McCrindle Organisation. Now, Mark McCrindle, Christian man, uh, he does social research. Uh, political parties will use it, businesses will use it, uh, marketers will use it in terms of understanding sociologically Australia. Um, they asked people a question, 
Are you glad that there's a local church in your area? Now, guess what the statistic was in terms of response? Just have a, think of a number in your head. 88% said yes. Now, that's stunning because, you see, that contradicts what you see with the Greens policy on school scripture. 88% of Australians are glad of a local church in the area, which I found, if I can say, very encouraging as a local minister. And it also resonates with the experience I have with people that I engage with here who are not Christians. Uh, they're always very positive. But it's striking, given the Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse and the way churches have been held to account. What does this mean? I think our context is this, as we live amongst non-Christian people, we are on the edge, we're not in the centre. There's Definitely that's the case. We are not in Jerusalem. Uh, they don't publish my sermons in the City Morning Herald, if you haven't noticed. They don't publish John Dixon's either. We have to stop thinking that the country is Christian, I think, at one level. I don't think it is. It's a country that definitely has Christian heritage and roots, and it's got the memory of Christendom, but it is fast moving towards becoming a secular country. And we are not at the centre in this discussion. Now, I know some people get upset by this. Personally, I'm not as worried. And the reason is this. Whenever the church has been at the centre, it typically has not been healthy. And you read church history, you see, when you combine religion, power and money together, it's an unholy trinity. The church has always ministered best and most powerfully and most bright when it's actually on the margins of society. Because it's at that point, people don't confuse the gospel with morality, Christianity with acceptability... And they start to see the reality of what grace is and the power of the gospel shining brightly in darkness. You see, greed and materialism is the air that we breathe. Everyone here is affected by it. And don't kid yourself if you don't think that's the case. All of us are affected by it. Sexuality is being redefined in front of our eyes. Gender is being redefined in front of our eyes. But we must not be afraid. Here's something to think about. Greed and materialism do not deliver lasting peace. They just don't. Now, I want everyone here, if, you, if I can say very politely, <laughs> do come and hear Richard Borgenon. Please come with your small group. It will be inspiring, I'll tell you. Uh, Richard was a very senior broker working out of Lloyds of London, writing insurance. Still is, two days a week. His life has been overtaken by sharing the gospel with top executives out of Lloyd's of London, out of the finance world that surrounds Lloyd's. I went when I was over there on a day visiting. He currently reads the Bible with 21 different top execs while doing two days a week work. And he's developed these notes. But I went and visited with five of the guys. I met with a guy who used to be the head of Lloyd's of London and basically had oversight of all the underwriters there. He now works for Warren Buffett, just a little job. And you know what was common? Richard would say to me, as I met with exec after exec, this guy made money in Portugal with property after the GFC. You know, this guy does... 
None of them, Richard would say to me, have any peace. They've made it all, but they're empty. You see, greed and materialism will not deliver. And it's in the darkness of a culture that's like that, the gospel shines brighter. If you want to have a chilling conversation, talk with Marilyn Buckley, who lectures on sexuality in our state schools. And she's an expert on it. And the stories chill me to the bone as you see the reality of sexuality being redefined and gender redefined and the impact on our young people about what they think is normative. But she deals with girls who are now... They're they're crying in some of the seminars as they realise... Because, you see, the sexual freedom that our culture has offered will not deliver lasting meaning. It does not bring freedom, it brings bondage. You see, only Jesus will bring lasting peace. Only Jesus will bring real meaning and freedom. And you start to see the wonder of the gospel shine brighter and brighter the darker our culture becomes. And so we must not be afraid, which leads me to my third point, as we understand our context that it's becoming darker and darker, and we hold on to our Christian identity, the call is to go and serve in the world. Have a look at what verse 12 says again. Live such, what lives? Good lives among them. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, in other words, there will be conflict, as light meets darkness, that's what happens. They may see your good deeds, they will reflect on actually, who, why are they doing this? And they will glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, there are going to be people who are led to Christ. And you come to chapter 3, And he says, make sure you're ready to give an account for the hope you have when people ask you. In other words, as you're living these lives, which are shining the light of the gospel brightly, be ultra ready to start sharing, which is why I want you to come and hear Richard, because he's going to give us a tool to help us actually just open the Bible and be, in his words, not a Bible teacher, a Bible sharer. And you go through 1 Peter, and one of the strong themes through it is doing good in the world. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Verse 15 of the same chapter 4, it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. How do you respond to the ignorant talk? Don't have an argument, just keep loving them and keep doing good and keep shining the reality of God out through your life and words. Verse 16, after saying be ready to give an account for the hope. He says, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You get to chapter 14 as if he hasn't said enough about doing good. He says this, those then who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. And what are we here to do? Hide back into our hole? No, have a look at chapter 4, verse 19. Continue to do good. You see, there's four ways you can relate to a city. One way that people who are Christians will relate to cities is they'll despise the city and you'll rail against it for all its evils and wrong. And let me say, there are lots of things you could rail against in Sydney. But what happens is you become a fortress in that city. And a classic endgame example of that is which church well-known in America? The Amish. Another response has been, you've become the city. 
And so you take up this word and go, oh, maybe this is wrong, or maybe this is wrong, or maybe this is wrong, and you forget that the Lord Jesus, who's at the centre of all, said actually there's a narrow way that leads to life. And we're called to walk on that narrow way. And people who become the city actually forget the word of God and they just are a mirror of the city. And you'll see churches like that. And there's no difference between them and the world. It's what you call liberalism. And then there's people who will want to use the city. And the church that uses the city becomes a time capsule. In other words, you realise there's some good stuff out there. You can make money. You can enjoy. And then you retreat to your time capsule and kind of think, okay, this is the safe world I'm going to live in. Or you can serve the city. In other words, you can say, I'm put here by God. We are here by God for the sake of the gospel. And rather than abusing, despising, becoming or using, actually we serve. And you see, the Apostle Peter lived in a day and age when it was far more dangerous to be a Christian than it is for us today. I mean, people lost their lives. I don't see that happening yet. Although the day is coming, I think, when people will be put in jail. And his command to us is to do good to everyone. Christians must not abandon the city, but serve it for the sake of the people and the sake of the gospel. And we need to send out our best men and women to gospel ministry, to be church planters and Bible teachers and missionaries and all of that. We need to do all that, absolutely. But we also need to raise up leaders of industry, leaders in education, leaders in the arts, leaders in politics, who will serve with a Christian identity and will bring their Christian mind to bear on this world. And I want to say here in Manly, that must be our vision because we have incredibly able people here, particularly who are coming up through the ranks. Service. And then the last point is this submission. I'm a bit wound up this morning. Sorry if I've gone a little bit longer, but I do want to finish on this, because as we come to a clever site on gay marriage, we need to hear this word. Verse 13, chapter 2, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. You see, what this means is that we as Christians have to respect and follow the government of the day. We're not permitted to be anarchists. And we're not allowed to be rude or shaming of politicians. And as we come to this debate, we must remember this. We may not agree with decisions and policies that are made or will be made. And I'm sure there are issues that we all disagree with. And it doesn't mean that we don't, in appropriate ways, write and dialogue and challenge. But what Peter says is you must submit and you must do it respectfully. It's why you won't see banners out the front of St Matthew's shaming politicians, which I have seen with some churches. I don't think it actually helps, I don't think it works. All it does is create a massive barrier between you and them for any dialogue that you might want to have on significant issues, which we do need to have. We must submit to those over us and serve them 
and seek the welfare of the city. And friends, I think things will get worse before they get better. If gay marriage comes in and sexuality continues to be redefined as it is, it won't be good for the world. I don't think it will be good for our society. But at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world. The end of the world is when the Lord Jesus returns. That's the end of the world. And that is our hope. And so it doesn't matter how dark it may become, we can still shine the light of the gospel brightly in anticipation of that day. And remember the way the Lord Jesus lived in this world himself. And on these words I want to finish. Because Peter says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, how did the Lord Jesus live? He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, what did he do? Well, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, what did he do? He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray yourselves, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What city do we live in? Definitely not Jerusalem. We have elements of Athens and elements of Babylon. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Because wherever we are, as Christians, we're called to shine our light in the darkness as we submit to those over us, as we love those around us, and as we speak of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just be quiet for a moment. And I just want to invite you just to pray for your own situation, your own world that you live and work in, and ask the question as a Christian. How can you do good and bring hope and life and love to those around you? Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you've saved us. Father, I, we were once lost and we thank you that in the face of Christ the light of the gospel has shone may we not remove ourselves from this world but be in the world shining your brightness and your love and doing good and give us opportunities to speak of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ I pray Amen.